Welcome Greetings, Ben. back to Nota Bene. I'm Benjamin Galtzel, Art Advisor, joined by Vanity Fair's <laughs> Nate Freeman. Don't What's... they know who we are at this point? If, do we need just in case, you know? I don't know. We haven't changed jobs. Someone texted week. me and told me to introduce, introduce ourselves at the beginning of the podcast. Really? I want to yeah. know who texted so, Yeah, that, that's off-line. for offline. That's for offline. Yeah. Um, Mm. Anyway, what what is this you're wearing out there in LA? I've never seen Nate wearing a long sleeve T-shirt before. I don't think is this for a painting company, Delicious Painting Restoration, no, and something else. It's it's the shirt that Calvin Marcus made with our good friends, friends of the pod, Alex and Elijah from Online Ceramics. And you know, when you're in Los Angeles, you just wear online ceramics. It's just what happens. It, okay, it's, it's much less crazy looking than most of the on- online ceramic stuff I'm used to seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, is it a Calvin collaboration? One could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's sort of uh, it, it's depicting the contracting company that that Calvin made while he was building out his home and studio, and I was over at his place on Saturday nights. Oh, and he very very kindly gave me and Lucy shirts. You get really that cool. on, and then you're wearing the night gallery cap. You're you're really yes. LA branded, buddy. You're East Side <laughs> East Side royalty. Out, you're drinking. Is that a <laughs> Moscow Mule cup you're drinking out of? It's a little bit I'm early in the coffee day. Coffee out of it. Yeah. Thank okay. You. Okay. Um, not great for the heat retention, but whatever, whatever floats your boat. Um, I mean, so you're it's, a, it's, you're a cal- you're, coffee. I believe you. Sure. You know, what is right, that? Fine. It's whatever. almost, almost, it's almost noon in LA. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what's going on? You were out at a Calvin studio. How was he have a little soiree? Oh, he had some, some friends of the pot over, you know, just for, for some tunes and some, some drinks. It was quite nice. Uh, you know, just you know, been bopping around in Los Angeles. There's a lot going on. It seems like New York is pretty dead, but you know, it's 75 degrees here. A lot going on. A lot of openings. A lot of shows. New York will never, will never die, and especially not with the mayor of Swagtown himself. Yeah, the, I, the crunkiest uncle at your family barbecue. I do miss Eric Adams being out here. Like, it's there's a certain like energy in New York right now because of his insanity that that I'm missing out on. It's the real New York. It's all the people that didn't jet down to Miami or L.A. to avoid the cold or Mexico mm-hmm. City, right? Um, and it's been going off. There's been some art things happening. I went to some art openings. Um, I went What'd to. You Let's see. Uh, I went to a Listen Gallery kind of opening and dinner for Haroon Miza, which was an incredibly weird mm. show, which I really liked. But the dinner was incredible. It being New Where York, was it? everyone being a little bit COVID conscious, it has, was supposed to be a big party, I think, at the Waverly. Uh, I guess people kept dropping out. So it became a, a table of 15 at N Japanese Brasserie. Love um, it. Which was incredible, uh, which is also the site of this week's uh, FT lunch with the FT. Um, anyway, really? and it was such a small dinner. We actually all went around the table and introduced ourselves, uh, wow. including our like affiliation. I was seated next to art advisor uh, James um, uh, Cardoso mm-hmm. Schaefer, and mm-hmm. he introduced himself as an art advisor. I didn't want to say as such, so I introduced myself as a podcaster. That went Let's over go. pretty well. Um, friend of the <laughs> pod, great. friend of the pod, pod Dean Kissick was uh, in fine form talking mm-hmm. about raw milk, uh, which I guess is a passion project of his. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. You, you yeah. haven't heard that before from Dean? No, yeah. no. Obviously, hey. Alex Logsdale was there, uh, fresh mm-hmm. off uh, a trip to uh, a trip to Africa for the holidays. Mm-hmm. Sunny and shining. His wonderful partner Sky Pittman, who also has a gallery now focused on a uh, oh yeah f- more Sky fashion Gallery's fashion cool photography. Yeah, down in uh, down in in the sea. What do you call that area? Uh, South Street Seaport, Street the place Seaport. where all the tourists goes. But uh, I think they got a pretty good deal on it in order to bring some some of the Seaport cool kids fucks, downtown. No, and I'm, she's like kind I, of a no, queen I of the cool the kids. Seaport. Yeah, I, you, I bet, bet you do. Yeah, no, we you have we, little we, TGI McFunsters. <laughs> There's that one good bar there that, that we Liberty. went to after. 
No, it's not. It's not called oh. Liberty. It's it's called something else. But it's good. I uh, believe you. And it's just it's just a deeply strange place. You know, back in the day, there used to be the Fulton Street Fish Market mm-hmm. down there, and that opened yeah. about three a.m. And I may or may not have had taken one or two trips with a posse of friends at about five, six in the morning to go go check out the fresh catch and and pick out our our delectables. Good times. <laughs> this is before your time in New York, Nate. Damn, I missed out. Oh, and the OG is now. Um, well, anyway, that dinner at end sounds great, and I, I, I have... It was great. There's also, you know, uh, some, 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 some curators from, from the Guggenheim. It was a fun time, but it was my first kind of art dinner in New York since Omicron, and so we're, 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 we're slowly emerging, but I'm excited to get out to L.A. this week. What else yeah. have you been doing? What else have you seen? Well, uh, I saw Eddie Martinez's fabulous show at, at the Blum and Poe Gallery. Um, which was uh, really, really spectacular. I think it's kind of a must-see here in L.A. I hope you're planning on checking it out. Yeah, and one of the nicest um, guys in the art world. Oh, yeah. Um, and Tim uh, Blum and Jeff Poe had a nice little outdoor uh, dinner at the gallery in the courtyard there. It was oh, uh, so catered, beautiful. Such a great place. by John and Vinny of John and Vinny's fame. Um, uh, knowing how many other artists love Eddie, I bet you it was full of some good people that dinner. Who it, else was there? It was great. Well, I was seated next to Jonas. Uh, which was great. And Sire Gomez, right, uh, you know, one over from, from Jonas. Jonas's wife, Shio, was there as well, sitting across from us. Um, Sebastian Black was there. Um, what other artists were around? There was a few others. Uh, Josie Nash, who represents Eddie in New York, was there. So all the cool kids, really. Yeah, it was, it was uh, we, you know, a really stacked. The show, you know, the show looks incredible. Is it in the, is it in, where is it in the gallery? Is it in the main space or is it upstairs? It's in the main space. And, you know, that is a really imposing space to it's have a to fill as a painter. It's a, that, that's a Grochon level space. You know it's what I'm Grochon saying? Like, it's Grochon and Cecily. And, like, you know, like, Eddie really does fill it. It's really something to behold. It's a great, great show. Very cool. Um, Did you, was there anything different upstairs? Uh, there's a few other shows upstairs that, that are also good. Anyway, okay, and, 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 see, you see anything else? And you were in the night gallery hat. Did you make it to yeah, the big yeah. group? They just opened a big group show of some sort, I believe. Mm-hmm. They have a, a great group show, just sort of like uh, it's called Shrubs. Um, it's a sort of vegetal uh, themed show around around things growing here in Los Angeles. Um, great uh, smattering of, of night gallery artists. Uh, and then a uh, friend of the pod, Will Hathaway, took me over to the new Night Gallery space, which is called Night Gallery North. I think that's somewhat ironic because it's just a block north um, <laughs> of their original space. Now, I saw um, that space a couple of years ago. I guess it must have been during the week of, I don't know when it was. And it was like, it needed some work. It was beautiful. Did they well, get it they, done? They got, yeah, they got it done. They put a ton of work into this. And it, it like just looks spectacular. I mean, like... I asked Will what it was before, and he said that there were like raves there and shit, and they turned it into like a big, like you know, just like fuck you, LA Gallery. It's awesome. And the first show that opens on Friday, which I think we should probably go to. Oh, yeah, it's, it's um, I already said that I would go and I'll be there. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, I was I already told Will you were going. So sorry. Okay, can we figure out a good vegan eatery downtown LA for afterwards? Oh, right fuck, you're still fun. vegan. Yeah, oh man, yeah. god damn it. Well, I'll... it's LA, man. Everything's fucking vegan. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Uh, talk about talk about a great place to be a sober king. Los Angeles, it is. <laughs> um, and uh, anything else good going on? There's not been much gossip in the art world. Uh, I think uh, there's some whole fucking shit show going on in Paris, but I don't speak French, so I can't read any of the coverage surrounding the fact that Fiac. It seems as though their landlords are trying to steal their dates and their space away from them. Yeah, I, you know, I actually got tipped off about this a few weeks ago, but because I've been on vacation, I've been, you know, just 
uh, not following up on weird tips about French art fairs. But yeah, apparently another fair is trying to grab those dates or something. And it seems of... like a shady French cultural politics, but it would be a bummer mm-hmm. just because the Fiat people, like that's as close as Paris gets to the real contemporary art world and God knows know. what else would go in that place. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, the whole like renovation is complicated, obviously. Um, and, you know, I was there at the fair this year and the temporary space is fine but it's not the grand palais it's just like there's no way that it can be so seems like Uh, it's a it's a a whole mess over there and also free is uh continuing the mass exodus of grade a people from art fairs Mm -hmm. Uh, freeze lost their longtime artistic director victoria sadell i believe she yeah i mean this was i think not the biggest shock honestly i think that you know she'd been sort of uh taking a step back over the past year i believe um, and then this just sort of makes it official, but I mean, she's a, you know, fantastic fair director. And I think that, you know, she's basically poised to do whatever she wants to at this point. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to hold on to talent in that sector of the world. Yeah. That's also they, true. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, in that fair in particular, it seems like people keep tossing and turning, but we'll be back in LA, not just this week, but later on in February for, uh, mm-hmm. for, for freeze. Yeah. Um, uh, from what I've been hearing, you know, on the gallery side, people are really, uh, gearing up for a huge week. I think that, you know, a few weeks ago, people were worried about Omicron possibly, you know, either cancel getting like canceled or like having it be a little bit dialed back. But that doesn't seem to be the case at all. Dude, that shit really... burned out. God mm-hmm. bless. Knock on yeah. wood. Uh, I think it's going to be totally fine by by mid Feb when this thing goes down. So I think we're fine. It's just like you know, all the film festivals are getting put online and canceled, and so like you know, LA does have kind of like a sort of cautious vibe, but. Yeah, I think by mid-February, everything will be fine. Okay, well, I'm excited to come and check it out. Uh, we'll compare notes of other shows I need to sh- see off-pod because uh, I get to be real efficient with my time, get some studio visits too. But I'm excited mm. to see you in the flesh, and hopefully we have a special announcement for a special guest of an in-person podcast, fingers crossed. But yeah. first, coming up just after this quick commercial break, we have uh, our good friend Haley Mellon. Haley's like, she's a painter. I got a painter of hers mm-hmm. in the office that we talk about. She's like an got activist. Right she's like, she started, like she sent us like a list of links of like eight different organizations organizations she started all battling to like make mm. the world a better place um she's living the good life and she's also really bright and fun to talk to so i think this interview is going to be really good and i encourage everyone to like hold on and check it out she's the only person who's come on this podcast who's actually saving the world uh 100 she yeah. made me feel like a dirt for the lack of my own action anyway mm-hmm. stay tuned for her she can make you feel like dirt too just after this, this. Hey, everybody. What's going on? Welcome back to Note Bene. We are so fucking thrilled to be joined by a very old friend of mine, friend of the pod, uh, artist, activist, conservationist, conservator. I'm sure I'm leaving some things out. Haley Mellon. What's going on, Haley? Hi, Haley. Hi, Nate. Hi, Ben. Where are we reaching you at? Where are you at right now? Uh, I'm in Northern California today. And that is, is Northern California, I believe, where you're from. Is that I, true? Yes. Yes. Eighth generation Californian. How you, many? Eight. eight. That's a lot. I didn't know. I mean, I guess I'm presuming your race, but I, I didn't know us white people went back that far in California. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is incredible. Um, and is that your primary base these days? Or are you still traveling? Around? I mean, I know you're traveling around a lot, but is that where you consider home? Yeah. So I think the last two years during... Uh, COVID, lockdown, et cetera, I've been here, which has been great uh, to see family 
And then um, I recently sort of, I'm planning to relocate back to New York soon. New York is happy about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, you're not going to be in San Francisco this week, are you? Haley? I am. I'll be here for fog. The fog. Great. Me too. Yay. I'm looking forward to seeing you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I haven't been in San Francisco in four years almost. But you're also, Haley, I think you said going to be down in Los Angeles this weekend when I'm down there. Yes, I will go um, for some studio visits and some museum meetings for a project we're working on for April. And I'll go for uh, Jonas's opening. Yay, I will see you there. That is why I'm Absolutely. going. Absolutely. Uh, you just informed well. me I need to set up some sort of testing regimen for myself, which I've done no research or work on. Jonas has the details about it. They essentially, like, well, you, Dave has the tests and we take them before. And it's okay. It's I all. don't need to do anything. I just need to show up and they'll do it for me. I think so, yeah. Yeah, okay. well, he's like well, well situated, well A well oiled machine out there on the West mm-hmm. Coast. I'm also really looking forward to this show. It's called Animals and Plants. And I know. Uh, love Very love excited. Very important to focus on biodiversity. I was just looking at some pictures of it. It looks like it's going to be excellent. And I know in one of your guises, uh, along with many other artists, uh, Jonas is someone that you've been mm-hmm. involved in. But kind of, I, I, before we get to that, I mean, I first know you, and I don't even know how I know you, but um, as an artist, that's the first, that's the hat you were wearing when we first met. Although yeah. I think even then you were wearing multiple hats at different times. Um, how did we meet? Do you remember? I have zero recollection. It's been forever. Yeah, we were sort of in a dim restaurant in the Lower East Side, um, and Ryan Sullivan introduced us, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think I met Nate through Tiffany Zablowitz. Mm-hmm. Um, that is true. Yep. And, uh, and then I first found out about your podcast over the summer. I was over at Eleanor Kyer's house, and she said, this is the most amazing podcast. So she introduced <laughs> me to that there and listened to, back, listened to back episodes. Deal, New Jersey, keeping it together. Um, that's mm-hmm. funny. In my mind, you had introduced me to Ryan, but I guess you're right. It was the other way around. I think it was a birthday dinner, what and it wasn't in was the it? East Village. It was in the it was in the West Village on like Twelfth Street, and uh, I believe was it was it a Spain? blustery, cold day. No, it wasn't Spain. It was a little bit more high end than that. R.I.P. Spain, one of the greats. Was it Cafe Lou next door? I don't remember it, oh, man. Yeah. yeah, I don't remember. Um, but at the time, I think you were still studying at maybe at NYU. Is that possible? Or Cooper yeah, Union? I or was, yeah, I was studying there and then teaching just to like go through school. And uh, Rosalie Goldberg and Carol Bobe were like fellow teachers, which was amazing and, and incredible, deeply um, invigorating. And uh, I was studying visual culture and education. Wow. But already, but already maybe always painting Is painting something that was always important to you growing up like in high school yeah for sure i think um i think very early on i i liked it as a manner of like looking at the world or observing the world and uh when i was quite young my my mom gave me this like little wooden box of watercolor sets so you know i grew up sort of middle class or i mean we, we had enough money for like food but there wasn't a lot left over and um and so that's what i like busied myself with and then uh my dad was super cool. He like supported my interests. And, and so I started taking like night classes at uh, the local college of Marin for figure drawing, like learning how to draw. And when you're like 13 years old and looking at like a naked person and trying to learn how to draw at the same time, like you just never been in those circumstances. Right. So uh, it was really challenging. And I, I liked the challenge. Hormones and intelligence all growing at the same time. I just realized, I just, <laughs> 
Yeah, I just realized that as I'm speaking to you, and I can't believe it's occurred to me, I'm actually also out of the corner of my eye. If I look not at the screen, I'm looking at a painting of an apple that is dappled with, of a green apple that is dappled with moisture. Uh, that is a painting by you, in fact, mm-hmm. that hangs in my office and lives with me here. Oh, um, and fruit is something artistically that I saw a lot of your your the work that I became familiar with early. Um, bananas were a big motif. I actually just hung a banana in a collector's uh, house in mm. Dallas the other day. Um, That's cool. Something we've owned for a while. And he's like, oh, we got to put that in the kitchen. That would be so cool. Um, and there was always some tension because, like, you have a, a very technical hand, but then sometimes you are also, you know, kind of using other technologies or techniques in addition to the brush. What kind of painting-wise, why did these kind of – it's a solo – it's always solo fruit on, like, a white background um, sort of floating in space. It's not foregrounded on any sort of, at least in my experience, on any sort of table or, or anything like that. Um, but obviously hearkening back in my mind to, you know, tabletop, you know, fruit, you know, bowls of fruit dating back through the Renaissance. Um, what was your particular interest in the subject matter? Yeah, I mean, part of the way I taught myself to paint was by studying sort of our great master painters from way back. And so I would be like 18 years old, surrounded by books and and, and sort of copying or trying to understand technique. Um, and, you know, I had a deep deep appreciation for like the mathematics of Cezanne, like how he would calibrate those compositions. I think people thought like, okay, he was just making these still lifes, but they were actually like, he would, he would structure the composition of the, of the surface with like points, like mathematical sort of points as to where things should be positioned to like hold the eye. And then he would sort of place fruit um, accordingly. And, uh, and so, you know, I think as you, you grow as a painter, you try out a lot of different styles and approaches and, and you go through different ways of thinking uh, and seeing things. And when I was going through school, um, I was thinking a lot about Richter and thinking about how, you know, what is like, what is the period we are going through visually and how is it affecting painting per se? And so obviously like that was very much the post-internet period. And so I was thinking about how, how is the digital impacting um, the painting experience, like the erratic experience of viewing a painting in person or not in person? And how is it affecting how we're making work? And so Richter really took into his challenge, like photorealism, right? He developed photorealism. Um, And so at the time I was interested in developing like a digital realism, like something that used such like fine glazes that there was like an undeniable like interest in beauty like the quality of the surface, but that also it was so finely painted that it could potentially blend into a digital image when it goes online. And so I would say I've, I've shifted more into the painterly camp since then, like the works I'm working on for the journal show this October, 2022 are fully um, painterly. They're still observation based though, but I've been looking more at like Frida Kahlo and, and different artists that engage symbolism as part of their uh, observational practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you had a num- you were in a number of group shows during the, the pandemic time, for lack of a better mm-hmm. phrase. And then, as you said, you have a big show coming up at the Journal uh, this coming fall here in New York. Very exciting. Um, how was it? Like, how did it feel? Kind of really focus. Being, were you able to focus on your work more or less during the pandemic? Um, well, I was, I focus a lot, like I focus pretty well. Uh, I work a lot at night and I don't sleep terribly much. Uh, I love, I love what I do. So it makes it, it interesting. Um, but I probably put quite a lot of time also into the conservation work 
during the pandemic, there was a lot, big shift in the art community towards interest in environmental sustainability. And I was fortunate to, to get a lot of those initial phone calls, whether it's from museums or art magazines or comms communications uh, organizations. So I, I worked a lot. I had like a lot of 14 hour days for, for the last two years. So you spoke there a little bit about some of your other work outside of the painting studio and the realm of showing your own work in galleries um, and museums and, and, and other sites of art observation. You also are, have been really engaged for a number of years predating the pandemic in work to save our planet, to save planet Earth um, mm -hmm. from its coming climate catastrophe, really, for uh, not to put too fine a point on it. How did you how did you get involved in your ecological in your ecological advocacy for yeah how did it first begin i guess yeah it's hard to answer i think what carex said one day i will find the right words and they will be simple but um i think biography is always like more long-winded as a nat natural sport uh yeah i grew up with a dad who taught me to just thought volunteering was important so that's what we did on the weekends and um i think as a young person i was really interested in the non-human world like I was interested in animals and plants uh, and the complexity of them. And uh, I think also I was interested in like legacy or what lasts, uh, mm. what, what's going to be here when we're no longer here. What, what are things look like a hundred years, 500 years, a thousand years out and what remains from our time here. So, I mean, I mean, not to cut you off, but there's also something, artistic about that and then an art when an artist makes a picture they're they're making it for their time and for themselves and people to see it but i think the the best artists almost all artists they want it to live forever or as long as possible and they want future generations to be able to interact with it engage in it and get something from it so i feel like there's a certain sim symmetry or a symbiosis between your vision ecologically for wondering what's going to be you know doing work that will survive in the future both artistically and in terms of activism yeah, for sure. I think there's a famous line by the author who wrote Death of the Salesman, which was like, you can't eat the fruit and throw away the peel, right? So, mm -hmm. so yeah, uh, art and conservation were very synergistic for me and have since proved to be quite the same. Um, the conservation aspect is um, something that I knew I wanted to do for like 20 years, but I also knew I was just too young and it took time to meet people and to grow up as a person and to start to feel like I was ready. Um, so. I mean, but you're, when we, it's almost, um, it's almost not giving it enough credit when I, when I, when I say it out loud, I mean, you, you're, you're doing incredible, incredible, like high level things. It's not just like, oh, donating painting or oh, showing mm -hmm. up to, to a meeting. I mean, you're really spearheading um, like like the, 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 the protection of old growth forests through, through various projects. If you wanna like start with maybe um, Art for Acres, I think is a really good mm -hmm. place to start and explain to people what Art for Acres is and um, what it does and kind of what your role in it is. Yeah, so um, Art for Acres is an artist founded 501c3 and uh, founded it in 2018 after about 15 years of research. Um, it, it is supposed to be a synaptic organization um, with a decentralized structure uh, wherein artists and museums and collectors uh, 
art advisors, gallerists, nonprofits, different uh, entities that want to support um, <clears throat> high impact uh, biodiversity, climate, and indigenous-led conservation um, can engage. And so the purpose was, was is, is essentially very large-scale land conservation where you're supporting um, full ecosystem conservation. And the interest on my end was to make it so that we could sort of look at how can we do good in the best way possible and how can that good last? How can we expand that good? Um, so a lot of times artists are asked to give a painting and, and there's like all the weight is on their shoulders. And so a lot of my work beyond the due diligence and the audits, et cetera, um, and the oversight of grants is really to work with like matching funds donors so that an artist will come in and give an artwork or a museum will make a strategic climate funds donation and then it'll be matched at, at 200, 300%. Um, and, you know, we've been supporting, I think this year was about 6 million acres of new conservation. Uh, and wow. it's really exciting. That's incredible. It's, it's incredible. So, yeah. Six million acres. And, and so you're part of the process of identifying where, you know, kind of where to focus these funds in terms of uh, finding the land, or are you just bringing the, uh, the, the kind of capital and, and the artistic uh, vibe to it? Are you actually, you're, I feel like you're involved from the ground up of like identifying where this money can do the most good. Yeah. I like to like, when, they, you know, when people like have like a slot where it says, you know, put your title and half the time I put like assistant or volunteer and half the time I put director or founder. Um, I, I, the best way to see that funds are spent in a wise manner and an effective manner is to be involved with all conversations. Um, and we have we work with an exceptional range of specialists and and conservation NGOs in in any project. Usually, a project has four or five uh, nonprofits involved, and they will they will offer value add services such as um, legal or due diligence aspects, their their administration, travel, and we work mostly on on providing the funds just for the conservation. Um, and so, yeah, so we're we're involved with 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 all levels of the projects, but it's really uh, a myriad of minds that make the decision on a final location. It's it's not a quick process. Um, there's a project that recently just concluded that had 30 years of research in it. Um, and it, but but it's also when it's done right, it's it's a very efficient process um, toward the end, and it, and financially, uh, it can actually be very affordable. Um, where's a where where are some of the, where have some of these recent um, acreages been located? Like where have you been at um, this? We're excited about starting a project, uh, the final phase of a project that's in Canada. It's in northern Yukon. It's 2 million acres, and it's going to connect uh, 18 million acres of migration route from transnational, from Alaska into Canada for the caribou. Uh, there is a project that also just recently is in its final stages in Colombia. That's a new national park. And that's a really exciting because it's a biome that's never been conserved but also an incredible store of carbon, um, underground carbon for uh, climate sort of balance uh, intention. And there's a, a small project, um, small in size, but really big in impact. It was about 30,000 acres, it's in Belize, and that finished this year. We put two and a half years of, of work and attention into it. Um, and that was really led by an organization called Rewild. And uh, that connects up 8.5 million acres of, of migration. Wow. Can you um, and that also has a really rare, really rare um, 
Central American river turtle, which had no conserved land anywhere. So uh, it, it gives it its first like official protection. Turtles, my spirit animal. Yeah. Can you say a little bit um, for people who not, might not know about the import of stored carbon and what conserving land that has a lot of stored carbon means and, and its impact on, on potential climate change? Yeah, so um, trees in their natural processes uh, in photosynthesis, they take carbon out of the atmosphere. So they take a CO2 molecule mm. this, and they release an O2 molecule or oxygen. That's how it, a tree makes oxygen. And then they store C in their bodies and underground um, root systems in mycelium networks. Actually, before this, I was on a call with Carl Burkhart, who's the deputy director of One Earth. And we were really talking in depth about uh, mycelium, which is like the underground fungal networks of a tree and how trees are able to push the carbon into the mycelium. And that mycelium in general um, has such incredible surface capacity to grow and store carbon underground. It's, it's almost endless. Um, so in general, trees are incredible um, functional uh, inventions for literal inventions for pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, were you able to get on the ground in any of those locations in Colombia or Belize and kind of see some of this land with your own and kind of touch it with your own hands? Yeah, the last trip I did um, internationally before COVID lockdown was to Colombia, and we it was about a week, um, and we met with the Minister of the Environment there to ask for matching funds for that project. Um, it was for the National Park project I mentioned, and it's going to be their last national park that they ever um, declare, which is really exciting. Uh, and one of the great things is they, they agreed to the matching funds. And I said, well, where are you getting the funds from? And they said, they're taking it from their carbon fuel tax. And so in Colombia, when you go to pump gas, right. you pay a tax for every liter of petrol you pump. And that's where the funds were going. Um, and wow. one, day, one day, hopefully a carbon, fingers crossed, a carbon tax will come into existence in the U.S. in the near future. And then we went on site and met with um, most of the projects that we support are uh, indigenous led conservation. So that means it's they're public lands already. They just aren't declared as conserved. In this case, it was it's a it's a 26 um, farm farm sort of parcels, and the farmers are not able to sustain uh, livelihood there with 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 uh, cattle just because the 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 ground isn't supportive of it. So they were very eager to sell um, to conservation. So we met with the farmers and, and spent time looking at the landscape. Uh, and just wanted to make sure that everyone was like really on board, which they were. And and the national parks there had done like an amazing job preparing. Uh, I, and have them. Yeah. I know on some of these trips, when you're uh, in the field with like scientists and and various other thinkers that are involved in the project, sometimes you've led little drawing classes as part of that. Oh uh, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about how you bring uh, how you bring your your worlds together in a very like material way? Yeah, that's sort of a little personal requirement. I don't think we've ever done a trip and not had a drawing, a drawing that's session. Great. Um, but usually in the hot of the, the heat of the day, it can, it can get quite, quite hot around like one to three um, in the tropics. And so we'll sit down and, and some people have never really drawn as an adult and some have drawn now and again. Um, so we do observation and they, I ask them to choose something and draw it. And it must be so cool to see scientists who are used to looking at things, whether they be like, you know, microbes or, you know, physical plants or whatnot, and having them really look, but with a different reason and perhaps a different set of eyes. And I bet you like the results are kind of fascinating, if not necessarily art of artistic merit. Yeah, amazing. Um, just one thing you mentioned, and I think it's important to highlight is how these projects you do are indigenous led. Could you just say like briefly for those who might not understand like what that means and why it's so important when it comes to conservation or carbon offset work to make sure that they're integrated and led by indigenous peoples? 
Yeah, it's really important to to just start anything in life with the term collaboration, right? Because we're all doing mm-hmm. things together. Um, and to end anything we do in life with that term too. Uh, and to have that be a guiding, guiding light throughout. The majority of key biodiversity areas on the planet are exist in locations that are uh, that are the homesteads of indigenous people. And indigenous-led conservation as a term is essentially very didactic. It means that the people who have lived on that landscape for you know, millennia or whatever, uh, lead the conservation of their own landscapes. And so usually there's been a request for actually usually for quite, quite some time where they, where they would like to, um, support the conservation of the ecosystems, the watersheds in which they live. And there's just a need for funds and the funds usually go toward, um, biodiversity surveys to mapping to the legal mechanisms and to pay the salaries of the people doing the work. Um, so it, it's, it's one of, in my mind, the best forms of conservation because it also speaks to homeostasis. Like how do we have a, a partnership, a symbiosis and understanding, uh, how do we have a functioning way of living where our landscape isn't um, harmed over time? Oh, that's beautiful. Um, in addition to this work for uh, to fight climate change and, and the conservation work, you've also been leading um, working with museums and I think eventually galleries, but thus far just museums on working to make their own operations more carbon neutral um, and helping them analyze their operations and exhibitions in particular. Um, and I, you know, and I think it's such an important thing, you know, in an art world, you know, I'm guilty of this, not just of flying myself all around the world um, uh, and, and the, the ecological toll that, that causes, but then shipping, you know, these, these, these objects, these, these, in right. some ways, you know, to me, very important to the artist, very important because you know these these to die for things um, that mean so much, um, but also kind of you know in the scheme of the globe, kind of meaningless and burning a shit ton of fuel in order to move them mm-hmm. from point A to point B, and the people to set them up and the the trucks and and the whole thing. Um, how did you begin to focus on this as a problem, and what have, what have you done to help museums begin to focus on it, think about it, and perhaps change or mitigate some of what they're doing? Yeah, I'm such a big fan of museums. It's such a, a museum is such an interesting structure, right? It's actually kind of similar to some aspects of conservation in terms of legacy. I mean, it's like this this house or this structure, and we sort of keep things in them and look at them and try to preserve them um, or let them continue to be what they are and mm-hmm. not interfere. Uh, so, so yeah, that the answer to that question starts with Amika Rottenberg. Uh, she phoned me in like November a couple of years back and said, uh, you know. A friend of mine, Kelty Ferris, had donated a canvas and you, you supported some, some cloud forest conservation with that. And I'd really like to be involved. I don't make that kind of work. I do a lot more institutional exhibitions. So can we start with our, with our upcoming show at the MCA Chicago? And so with that show, she put a line item in her budget for I think seven acres of conservation. And we've worked with Mika ever since. Um, I really enjoy so cool. that, that invention she made. And then following up with that, um, I think... I think Josh Bayer put something in the Bear Facts about uh, my nonprofit. And then the Guggenheim reached out for the Rem Coolhouse exhibition, Countryside. Mm-hmm. 
and asked for a carbon audit. So we did a carbon audit. I did a carbon audit with um, Terra Global Capital in San Francisco, which is a women-founded, women-run carbon shop of that exhibition. And the Guggenheim um, used that to start to look at travel, like how to travel less. One of the things they found with that carbon audit was just like, hey, we took a ton of trips and they were really short. How do we fly less, stay there longer? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm looking at it right now. The the the, the Guggenheim, uh, you know, the rundown, and, and it is shocking, like how much, how many flights there are. You know, it's just like, you know, it's a lot. Yeah. So that was, I think, the first carbon audit for any U.S. museum. And since then, I sort of said, wow. okay, I'll two years, and I'll donate time to any institution that wants that. And I think we've done about thirty-five cents, um, and it's been great. Like the ICA Miami came on board this year, and they really started shift, shifting how they were shipping. And now they consolidate shipments before having something move. Uh, MOCA from their audit noticed that the majority of their carbon emissions were in energy. And so they're shifting to taking the gap in solar. And so usually what you do is you measure this gas that we can't see and we can't smell. And you use that as a way to reflect and sort of figure out what are some bulk major changes we can make. We're not going to make every change in the world, but we can make some concerted efforts. Um, I think it's really important for all of us to, to kind of look at these things. And I think museums, as you said, they're, they're a, they're a container, much like the conservation work. I think that's such an interesting, interesting thing to think about in the same way that some of your conservation of kind of wanting to plan for 500 years in the future is similar to what artists do and putting things out there. So I think with you, it's really like, I've always known this, but the more I speak to you today, that these things aren't separate. They're all part, in a way, of the same practice, the practice of, of being you. And I think it's something all of us can maybe take into account is that like it, we can do all of these things. It can all be part of kind of who we are in the world. Um, have you been involved at all with um, like the, uh, I know the Gallery Climate Coalition, GCC, which is something I've been looking into for my own business, um, which kind of helps establish parameters and helps small businesses like myself that might not be able to bring in an independent consultant begin to do their own mini audits of carbon. Um, do you know anything about their work at all? Yeah. Um, so GCC, if, if, if you guys haven't gone to their website, highly recommend it, uh, Gallery Climate Coalition, and sign up as a member. Uh, I'm a member and... Uh, and use their carbon calculator often, like we use it for the ICA Miami show. Highly recommend their work. There's also great resources on that site for how to be more environmentally sustainable across, across the board. You know, like two years ago, a bunch of different initiatives formed. Uh, GCC was one, Galleries Commit in New York, Artists Commit, Art and Climate Action. Um, and we meet, you know, I think once every two months. Uh, and the initiatives generally underscore a commitment to the Paris Accord, right? Like a 50% carbon reduction by 2030, which is great. And that again, shows us why collaboration is so necessary. That when you bring a lot of minds together, we can get things done. Yeah, um, well, I think there's the the Partners for Arts Climate Targets with PACS, right? Or PACT, which is kind of an overarching kind of a way for these different uh, climate initiatives within the cultural sphere, within the visual arts sphere, to all kind of touch yeah. base, even though they're disparate and have these somewhat overlapping goals, but to meet uh, every once in a while and just kind of make sure everyone's moving in the same direction. I just know GCC is something that I've used personally, and I would encourage all of our listeners to check it out just because it is really simple and easy. And I'm just one step up from being a caveman, but I was able to, huh. to figure out some things to do, but also to really give, give myself space to think about my impact and to give concrete ways to measure it and to make small incremental changes that have a positive net 
effect in the world. Um, and yeah. you know, I'm a cold, you know, a cold, a cold dead heart, but it, it was really very effective and important to me. Right. And you're also very involved in, in conserve.org, um, which mm-hmm. is something else that people, a very actionable, easy thing for people to do to make a little bit of change in their life and in the life of the world. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I feel like these initiatives are, are really important. And and to go mm-hmm. back to GCC, like I realized we needed a chapter in, in the U.S. and they were keen on doing that. So we supported a chapter being formed in LA and I think there should be one coming up soon in New York. Um, but the initiative like conserve.org is, is key to like when, when people want to conserve a few acres at a time. And I found that that is just like an easy way. Let's say you have, you know, some money like 40 bucks and you want to support permanent land conservation. It's just a nice way for people to have like their first tangible experience with land conservation. And also you can just give it as a gift. So like, it's pretty popular, like, you know, Zwerner gave the Judd Foundation like a donation in their honor of like, you know, I don't know, 10 acres, et cetera. I think it's very cool. And not to sound like a traditional podcast, but I, I will leave the link to conserve.org uh, in the show notes. Yeah. So you can click on that and you buy can also your Google it yourself. But yes, sure. Yeah. Thanks I mean, you know, like, again, you know, people are people, I'm, I'm sure more people know how to Google than to click on whatever well, links I mean, that I make. Yeah. And then there's also art into acres, which I know is another, I mean, this, the list goes on and on that uh, I believe you're involved in. Um, and oh, that's what that's what did the Belize the uh, the, yeah, the project in Belize, right? Yeah, yeah sorry, mm-hmm. it's all one. And I do want to touch back. You know, there's something about you, Haley, that is so about caring for the world, um, for your friends, um, you know, for art, for artists. Um, but you've also over the years have been very involved in the care for actual older art objects and have done some conservation right. work. So I'm really fascinated to hear how you got into that, what it means is it something you still do. I mean, it's such a foreign world, but I think it really is part and parcel of who you are. Um, when did you first get interested in and begin to conserve pictures? Oh, I, yeah, I just think like as an artist, I spent a lot of time on conservation of all you know, conservation of land, conservation of pictures, conservation of resources. I guess it's a big, big thematic. Um, I I started conserving pictures. I think when I was sixteen, I started like learning that practice, and I love it. It's it's such a great. Did you have like a mentor? Like who taught you this? Uh, yeah, I, I I did have a mentor like early on at that stage. Uh, was a guy named John Brown was teaching me, and then I studied um, I studied uh, for a few years at conservation techniques. And uh, at the same school, actually, that Sandy Heller studied, I think he was also studying conservation. Just yeah, he was. Yeah, time. and I um, didn't know. Huh. And so I've done it. I would say it's a hobby. Like I mean, I do it professionally, but it's something like I deeply enjoy. So like at the end of the day, it's it's great to uh, it's it's like a very zen experience because when you're done, it's like you were never there. Like if you really do it right. I mean, in the romantic part of me, thinks that like you're you're really getting in there and trying to uncover and mimic away an artist that's probably long dead, like how they worked and how they approached their technique, and you're kind of figuring it out and probably understanding a picture on a whole different level because of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And sometimes I don't like the actual picture. Like there's a Voltaire quote where he says, "I disapprove of what you say, but will defend." to the death, you're right to say it. Yep. So sometimes I'm conserving a painting. I'm like, I hate this painting. But I'm just trying to like honor, honor what the artist wanted. And um, a lot of times if you don't conserve the work, it's never going to be seen. So it's also like in a very brutal way, it's just kind of like recycling, right? It's like making things to continue to be able to be used. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm hippie, but I find something so spiritual about like kind of being so close to a person that made this thing and this object that's existed through history. I mean, it's just, it's not the hippie, it's the romantic part of me and my romantic attachment to art objects. Yeah, a lot of the works that have been coming through recently just for framing or touch up or different things have been um, over the last like couple of years, I don't want to say recently, but over the last couple of years have been works that uh, George Lucas owns that are going to the new narrative Mm -hmm. museum that he's making in Los Angeles. Amazing. Awesome. You know what, Haley, I'm, I'm even, I'm always so happy to know you and to know you exist in the world, but even more so after getting a chance to chat with you about all these totally. things. And it was so, I was so thrilled over the summer. I hadn't seen you in a couple of years and uh, mm-hmm. popped in our mutual friend, Danny Bennell was hosting you for a tea. And so I, I did a little beeline over to his spot and we got to hang mm-hmm. out in person. I think I've seen you a couple of times since then, but um, mm-hmm. I always feel a lightness and a joy when I'm in the same room with you. So thank Me you too, for really. existing. Oh, thanks, guys. I, I, I really enjoyed this. And mm. it was great. I listened to Ellie and Jasmine's podcast last couple of weeks as I was thinking forward towards our time together. Just mm-hmm. love what you do and um, love our friendship. Awesome. Well, I look so, forward to giving you a fist pump and or a hug in LA in this weekend. Days. Yeah. Me too. I'll right. see you before then. See in you SF, hopefully. All right. Thank you so much, Haley. Nota bene. Out.